Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by John Stefaniak. John is a partner with TDS Law with over 25 years experience in many areas, but with a focus on natural resources and environmental law. In his more than 25 years in the business, he's gained global recognition for his work. One of the things that John mentioned when we had a discussion earlier was he had the the luck or privilege to say he's never had a client who hasn't wanted to do the right thing. You know, in today's world, John, social responsibility needs to be part of maintaining our bottom line as opposed to being just separate from our bottom line. And I think that came from, from you as well. So let's talk a little bit about social responsibility and how did you get into environmental law in the first place? Well, it was pure serendipity to start off with. Uh, I didn't envision myself as the first-year lawyer going into environmental practice. I thought it'd be more corporate commercial practice. But when our then uh, managing partner came by and said we had a client who was looking at stepping in to take over uh, a gold mine that was in the process of receivership and needed me to uh, figure out what environmental liabilities that the receiver might uh, end up uh, taking on, that became my job. A few weeks later, and uh, a couple of big, thick black binders, as it was in the day, and uh, had everything set out. And then these questions kept uh, coming up more and more. You have to remember that was back in the late 80s, so that uh, environmental law was just getting on the radar screen for a lot of people, especially in commercial transactions. Well, in today's world, especially both politically and and on the business front, there's a lot of talk and importance put around uh, the environment and and laying out the future for the next generations. So as business owners, how do we know the things that we need to look at? I'm going to talk on behalf of the listeners here being a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, we may be in business that we don't think has an effect on the environment. But in fact, maybe we are. And we talked a little bit about supply chains. And if we're developing a product and we're working with people that are getting it out into the market, what is our role as business owners uh, what things do we need to put in place to ensure that we're looking after the environment down the road? Well, I think everyone's realized, especially during the course of the pandemic, how connected uh, businesses are, not only just that locally, nationally, internationally, and supply chains are, uh, are, are something that you can't ignore, especially during times where they're being disrupted. Along with uh, local businesses, uh, who may be uh, suppliers in most cases, the global purchasers are looking at environmental stewardship as a measure of providing value. And it, it all fits into the concept of what's being referred to now as ESG, or environmental, social, and governance. And the environmental piece is just one aspect of uh, ESG reporting and internal compliance. So ESG... We- We've all heard the term, and as you've described, is environmental, social, and governance. Is there a governing body that actually oversees this and and puts the rules in place? How do people learn about it, and how do they comply? 
Well, there isn't really in terms of a governing body. Uh, there are various rating agencies that exist. There are uh, various but similar definitions of what uh, ESG comprises of, uh, or is comprised of rather. Uh, so for example, the environmental side would include things like carbon emissions, air and water pollution, energy efficiency, waste management, pollution control. The social side, it would include things like data protection and privacy, gender and diversity, employee engagement, community relations, human rights and labor standards. Then on the governance side, it would generally include things like uh, board diversity, audit committee structure, lobbying activity and disclosure, whether there's a whistleblower uh, scheme and having appropriate uh, bribery and anti-corruption policies in place. So there are fairly widely ex accepted uh, definitions of what falls into these headings, but no uh, universal rating agency. Uh, there are rating agencies who take the trouble, including uh, Standard Poor's Global, now known as S&P Global, who will rate corporations uh, for ESG uh, performance and compliance. But uh, there are several rating agencies out there, uh, all of which can be hired to perform audits if, if need be. Perhaps uh, sometimes the most reliable way to look at it is to look at uh, corporations' sustainability uh, reports that they publish uh, on a regular basis, along with financial reporting these days. And uh, that can provide a lot of information and provide some guidance to businesses who are looking to employ similar measures. So we often think of ESG applying to only large corporations, but for, say, small and medium-sized businesses, if we take it down a notch and we think about uh, the work that we do, we may be manufacturing a product and we're uh, selling it through the supply chain. What measures do we have to take as business owners to ensure that it's not getting into the wrong hands or if it's going to a country where it shouldn't be sold? What, what can we do as business owners to protect ourselves? Well, that, that's a very complicated question when it comes to compliance with international treaties. And it usually relates to very sensitive products. Uh, and industry organizations are probably the best source of information when it comes to those kinds of things. When exporting sensitive products to uh, regions of the world where there may be restrictions on the ability to supply. And, and you have to keep in mind too that some countries like the US extend their jurisdiction uh, extraterritorially to affect non-US companies that might do business with these entities. And then uh, you run into issues uh, like the Huawei issue, uh, currently uh, played out in Vancouver, where uh, US laws may apply to uh, non-US corporations and uh, create issues uh, when it comes to enforcement of US law. But you know, usually industry associations have a good handle on what a particular industry should be looking at in terms of protection in those areas. Also, consulting uh, trade lawyers where necessary uh, can be very helpful, or uh, Global Affairs Canada, uh, Export Development Canada, all, all those uh, kinds of organizations can be a valuable resource. Do you have any examples with the work that you've done, uh, examples of companies that perhaps they think that they're doing the right thing, 
but in fact, they may not have the information that they need. I think you cited a case in Quebec where there was application made for a development project, but it didn't take into consideration the needs of the Indigenous communities. Can you explain a little bit about what that situation was and what could have happened that would have avoided some of the situation that they got themselves into? So this is a case that was recently up to the Supreme Court for leave to appeal. The issue was that a mine developer uh, was looking at uh, advancing an advanced exploration project, had what it thought were the necessary approvals from the government, read necessary permits, had environmental reports that showed that uh, the limited scale of work that they were going to perform would not cause adverse impacts to the community and wanted to proceed. Uh, But the community was not satisfied with that information. The community was looking for something else. Uh, The community wanted to know what was going to happen if a mine was actually developed on the site. And uh, the developer kind of ignored those uh, concerns on the basis that a mine might never be developed or a mine would be subject to further approvals, could be dealt with at that time. And as a result of the concerns expressed by the community, the uh, Quebec Ministry of Environment and the minister declined to issue the permit to the mine developer, uh, resulting in uh, allegations of losses that approached $200 million. So uh, the moral of that story was that you have to engage your uh, your public, your community, whether it's indigenous community or other community, to get the necessary social license to carry on the activity that you want to do and that it's within the realm of reasonableness for a government to refuse a permit on the basis that it's not satisfied that the community has been appropriately engaged or or that the community's concerns have been appropriately addressed. That's a really good example. So how do we as business owners, what can we do to better engage our community or or just have a better understanding of what all gets included? You know, today where we're on social media and we talk about social license, perception is reality. So at what point do businesses interact with a, a lawyer such as yourself to bring you in to help us? Is it on the designing stage? Is it because we can go out and have permits and and think that we're doing the right thing, but if we haven't consulted the community, it may backfire on us and we may end up having to hire you on the back end uh, because we haven't done things right on the the front end. Right, and uh, the analogy I use is that uh, it's a lot... Uh, easier and cleaner to uh, uh, you know to consult as early as possible, and uh, usually results in a far better result. You know you could call a lawyer after things hit the fan, and lawyers could come in with a shovel and try and clean up what's occurred. But if you can uh, avoid uh, anything hitting the fan before it's even plugged into the wall, I think that's the way to do it. The approach is to uh, identify concerns early on, attempt to address them through dialogue and consultation. And you're not always going to get 
uh, unanimity. You might achieve a consensus, but that's not always necessary. And remember, a consensus does not mean unanimous agreement. Uh, but at least you can demonstrate that the appropriate efforts have been taken, the legitimate concerns have been addressed, and that may be sufficient uh, for a whole bunch of purposes. It may convince your regulator that you've done everything you need to do. It may satisfy a sufficient number of your neighbors and community members uh, to buy sufficient support. And if in the context of uh, a consultation with Indigenous groups, uh, Indigenous people, if it's something that's required under the Constitution, uh, that goes uh, toward meeting those uh, obligations as well on behalf of the government. The earlier you begin to examine these requirements, the earlier you begin to plan for them and engage the appropriate people to assist with that process. Uh, it's not necessarily just lawyers. There are plenty of consultants available and planners and uh, Absolutely. So here we are in, in Canada, and we may do business in other countries uh, around the world. What do we need to do to set ourselves up for doing business elsewhere? What uh, counsel would you give to, to companies that are looking to expand their business? Uh, what would be the first step that they would do? Are you the type of, of attorney that they would look to hire? Well, probably not directly, but I think the important thing is to have uh, trusted advice uh, that's local. And so uh, one thing that we are able to offer through our firm is a global network through our Lex Mundi affiliation, where we have sister firms in 136 odd countries around the world, where we can make introductions, make those contacts, get some element of uh, free legal advice, uh, at least initially, in order to set clients on the right direction. And uh, another resource is uh, Global Affairs Canada. Uh, it offers uh, a number of these kinds of services for business uh, throughout the world. It's part of the consular type services that are offered. And uh, they're active uh, with uh, promoting uh, Canadian interests and Canadian businesses. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. It's, you know, fascinating. Often we don't know where to go for advice, so that's, that's really great. One of the things I noticed that you've done some work uh, in other countries, specifically East Africa. And can you just tell us a little bit about what's the backstory there and what it was volunteering uh, with law societies there? Tell us your story. Well, I've been a long time volunteer with the Canadian Bar Association, and uh, I'm currently on the National Board of Directors. But uh, going back a few years, I became interested in a project called supporting inclusive resource development, which is funded through Global Affairs Canada. And it's put on as a partnership between the Canadian Bar Association and the East African Law Societies, the Law Societies of Uganda, Kenya, and uh, Tanzania. And the purpose of the project is to help build capacity in these East African countries in connection with natural resource development. 
uh, in each of these countries. They've got a relatively new mining regime. They've got new experience with oil and gas development, which is increasing at a, a significant clip in these countries. They've got uh, different uh, legal processes that, than what we have, although they're all common law jurisdiction countries. The idea was to give them uh, the benefit of our experience, especially in relation to uh, community issues and also uh, women's issues. Uh, as you probably know, it's uh, women that often bear the brunt of the effects of natural resource development uh, because they're typically, in many countries, the providers, they uh, do the farm work, uh, they look after the household, and sometimes they're the ones that supply the additional income for the family. And the kinds of social and uh, economic and uh, sometimes environmental and property changes that uh, a large-scale mine or oil and gas development bring along can be very disruptive. Fascinating. And do you, do you get involved at all in helping people come over to Canada? Or is it strictly doing work in that area? All of our work has been done uh, in East Africa. It's uh, been done through several groups. Uh, some of them have gone into the uh, local communities to try and uh, establish uh, advocacy groups among community members to look at specific issues that directly affect communities. My involvement has been more on the uh, teaching and educational side and also in the policy review and occasionally asked to look at policy documents or draft legislation while in Canada and provide comments. But in terms of uh, attending uh, in East Africa, it's been meeting with members of the uh, various law societies and including uh, NGO groups and community groups uh, in a conference type setting and, and trying to uh, bring awareness to our experience and, and international standards uh, in uh, natural resource development. Can we just talk a little bit about social license and today's world where it's all eyes on every company and, you know, companies that do well by doing good. Uh, we hear about them, employees wanting to work for companies that have shared values, people that want to buy from companies who have shared values. And then you read things in the paper about, you know, social license, that it might be a good company that all of a sudden flips over to the other side. Can, can you just explain a little bit to us about perception and reality on social license? Social license is something that's really only come up in the last 15 years or so. I remember uh, a large editorial comment, I think it was 16 pages in The Economist magazine, advocating that the only obligation of a business was to earn a maximum return for its shareholders and that uh, doing good for the sake of doing good was not a legitimate uh, corporate objective. Uh, how things have changed since then. That's for sure. And it's because doing good and doing the right thing and supporting good social values does impact the bottom line because it does uh, impact the corporation's ability to attract clients and customers and to uh, obtain the necessary approvals and ability to carry on its business in the neighborhoods in which the business is carried on. 
you know, my experience with social licenses usually in the area of uh, industrial development. A uh, company wants to build a new plant, a company wants to modify its processes. Someone's looking at uh, harvesting natural resources. The affected communities are interested in what impacts this is going to have on them and their livelihoods and their quality of life. And unless you can win those communities over to see that what you're doing is not going to be adversely affecting their ongoing lives in any meaningful way and is likely to generate positive benefits, you can face a real uphill battle. And this takes a variety of forms. So in the area of uh, consultations with Indigenous groups and uh, communities, sometimes it's in the form of uh, impact development agreements. So uh, the business is able to negotiate employment opportunities, contracting opportunities, social development opportunities as part of its support for the community in part to deal with the concerns and objections that a community may have and to show that it's going to be a good, a good neighbor uh, for all intents and purposes. It doesn't matter what kind of neighborhood you're entering into. If the perception of the community is that you're not going to be a good neighbor and you're going to do something that's going to be disruptive and harmful, you're going to be faced with opposition and if that opposition carries sufficient weight, regardless of whether you're able to show on a technical basis that you, the concerns are unfounded, you're not going to be able to get the approvals that you think you ought to be entitled to. So understanding your communities and genuinely looking after their best interests before you have your plans done. Well, or as a part of planning, because <laughs> you have to be flexible in terms of what it is that you're going to be doing. Because if you go into uh, a proposed development and until you know what those concerns are and until you've heard them, uh, it's going to be difficult to uh, make a, a concrete plan as to how you're going to be dealing with them. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that, that you made clear to me is that we as business owners, we may be doing all the right things, but unless we have it documented and can communicate it and have accountability put in place around it, we may not get the credit for doing all the right things. So it has to be part of a process, a plan that is executed appropriately. And, you know, there is some guidance out there too. The uh, International Standards Organization, uh, ISO has, uh, uh, ISO 26,000, guidelines on social responsibility uh, is a non-binding standard that uh, can be used as guidance for uh, you know showing appropriate social responsibility for an organization. There are all kinds of other uh, standards that are out there. There are, uh, in terms of international project financing, there are things like the equator principles that govern bank lending for large-scale developments. Uh, all of these things are out there, they're published. Lots of organizations uh, support them. The Canadian Mining Association is one which uh, publishes information on responsible mining practices. You know, if, if you're 
engaged and plugged in and you're in a business that is likely to cause impacts, uh, it's important that you address the impacts head on at the outset and so that you can get the appropriate level of uh, community buy-in to allow you to carry on your business and uh, you know generate the benefit to the, for the community as a whole. Wonderful. Well, I think that you know, with the emphasis put on the environment, all the changes in government that are happening at this time, we all need to keep ourselves informed and get to know people like you that can provide us with the guidance that we need. So my last question before I open it up to you to say, what haven't you talked about that would be useful to the people listening today? What is the best advice that you would have for a new professional that may be interested in going into environmental law? It's never too late to become an orthodontist. <laughs> That's no, a but, good one. <laughs> but, but seriously, um, it's an interesting field. Uh, it has grown over the last uh, number of decades. It is a narrow field if it's something that you expect to do full-time in your career. The focus is on major centers and the focus is on uh, large firms. Uh, some people think they're going to work for a non-governmental environmental organization as a full-time lawyer. Those positions, I think there may be two or three in Canada where lawyers are hired full-time by environmental NGOs. You have to be realistic. And what you have to do is develop your skills working probably in a variety of practice areas and then begin to fo focus and develop your, your niche and your specialization. Best way to do that is to hang around with other people from across the country who are working in that area. And uh, soon they become friends and they become contacts and they become referral sources and uh, you become their referral source. It uh, develops tremendous experience in a great network of uh, friends and professional acquaintances and uh, makes for a lot of fun. That is great advice. So I'm going to just open it up. Is there anything that you would like to touch on that I haven't asked the right questions? One thing that I would touch on is that sometimes a business owner is going to say, well, how's that going to affect my business? And I'll tell you our experience. And as a law firm, especially dealing with U.S. clients and, and more recently with larger Canadian clients and responding to requests for proposals, there's increased emphasis on things like demonstrating diversity programs and uh, demonstrating uh, environmental initiatives, you know, that we're looking at reducing our greenhouse gas emissions in some fashion as best we can, or that uh, we have a a real robust diversity program. The days are long gone when we used to be able to say that, well, look at us, we're really diverse. Now you need to demonstrate that uh, you are conscientiously implementing a program that is going to assist in allowing traditionally underrepresented groups to enter into the profession and become actively, actively engaged in, your, in our firm. Now, that is a lot more active. It's not something that's passive and requires work and commitment. And it generates tremendous results because, you know, in that area in particular, I've been astounded at the quality of people we've been attracting to our firm. 
and partly because we have implemented that kind of a program. I'm just glad that I'm not applying for an articling student position now uh, because the competition out there and the quality of applicants we receive is absolutely outstanding. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I think that's a great place for us to finish off. And I just want to thank you very much for opening up our eyes to this field, very specialized field that, that you live in. You know, you're able to help set the stage for years to come when it comes to businesses looking after our future, whether it's environment, social, or the governance side of things. Thank you, John. Well, thank you, Polly. This has been a real pleasure. If you missed anything, don't worry. We took all the notes for you over at Vexit.com, where you can find the show notes for this as well as other episodes and a whole lot more. While you're there, why not take a look around? And everyone is welcome to be part of our free Vexit community, where you can discover how to take control of life's serious stuff. Then when you have a need for a professional advisor, try our matching tool. It's easy, free, and actually fun. You'll get matched with up to three professionals when looking for an accountant, lawyer, financial advisor, or consultant. Lastly, remember to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And we would really appreciate it if you'd let your friends know about this show. Feel free to tag us with at Vexit on most social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. And if you want to connect with me directly, my email is podcast at Vexit.com. We want your ideas for what type of professional advice you're looking for off the clock. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Vexit podcast. I'm your host, Polly Craig. The Ask a Vexpert podcast is a production of Vexit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.